This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design works on an enormous and diverse range of interesting problems. So I asked product designer Jessica Durkin what's her biggest challenge with designing for Facebook. So I think the biggest challenge for designing for Facebook is simultaneously designing for the two billion people that we're trying to design for um, and also serving the handful of people that really rely on a particular part of our product and balancing the needs of specific populations and the overall population that we serve. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Cloud4 is looking for a front-end developer in Portland, Oregon. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you again that we're sponsoring the 2017 Black in Design Conference. And that's going to take place October 6th through the 8th at the Harvard University Graduate School of Design. Activist and podcast host DeRay McKesson will be giving the closing keynote on Saturday, and general admission tickets are still on sale. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can get yours today. Also, in case you missed our announcement, remember we're donating 100% of our store sales this month to go towards Hurricane Harvey relief efforts. Proceeds are going to the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund that's put on at the Greater Houston Community Foundation, and Threadless is also chipping in and offering free shipping for the month for any orders over $45. Now, unfortunately, so far, we have not had any sales. So please check out what we've got in the store. I just added our commemorative 200 episodes poster that's only going to be up until September 30th. And get your shop on and help out a great cause so we can get the people that have been affected by this back on their feet. Revisionpath.com forward slash store. The presenting sponsor for this week's episode is Video Blocks. Video is really big right now. You know, I'm doing the judging for the Davy Awards and the W3 Awards. And nearly every entry that I've looked at has some video involved in some way. If you need clips for a web video or for a website header or a background, Video Blocks is exactly what you need. They've got millions of studio quality HD stock video clips that are royalty free and new videos are added regularly. Go to videoblocks.com forward slash revision path to get all the stock footage you can imagine for just $149 a year. Video Blocks, V-I-D-E-O, B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash revision path. Go check them out. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. You know, I think anyone who has a small business knows that sometimes advertising can feel like you're just throwing your money into a black hole. And MailChimp really gives you the power to see exactly what's working and give you the confidence to grow your business in your own way. 
Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. When did you buy your first domain? I bought my first one, uh, Mari'sCherry.com, right out of college. I bought it on June 19th, 2003. That was exactly a month from when I graduated. And throughout my career online, throughout my career in person, really, uh, it's been the one constant as I've grown as a designer and as a professional, even as I've switched to different web hosts. And you know, that's the kind of flexibility that Hover offers you, along with a bunch of other great perks like personalized email and free Whois privacy. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. They let you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple options that your websites can grow into. And all plans have managed WordPress hosting, including staging and Git integration. Get started today by visiting SiteGround.com forward slash revision path. You can get 60% off on all their hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. Now for this week's interview, we're talking to cartoonist, publisher, and best-selling author C. Spike Trotman. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, everybody. I am C. Spike Trotman. Just Spike is fine. I am a best-selling author, cartoonist, and the owner and operator of Iron Circus Comics, Chicago's largest alternative comics publisher. And I am basically the person that established the best practices over and on Kickstarter in the comics section. If you ever see an anthology being run over there and it's being run in a certain way, chances are that's because of me. I was a Kickstarter early adopter and I ran my first project the year the site launched, which was 2009, back when the general consensus was that using Kickstarter would be bad for your career and desperately unprofessional and no one will take you seriously now. And it has been a monumental force in comics. I know that a lot of people, when they think Kickstarter, they think things like ultra slim wallets and fidget spinners and <laughs> 3D printers and video games. And, you know, for good reason, those are very wealthy categories and everybody loves big numbers. But Kickstarter has been literally transformative of the comics industry. It's an industry that has a lot of unusual problems for a ton of decades old reasons. And being able to crowdfund a book and directly self-publish to readers has been so game-changing for the small press. And I was one of the first people, I mean, let's not bullshit, I was one of the first people to recognize that potential. And to date, I've run... I just finished running my 13th Kickstarter. I'm 13 for 13. I've raised, I want to say like $760,000 total. And it's played a huge part in getting Iron Circus Comics where it is. Wow. That is phenomenal. <laughs> I certainly want to go into Kickstarter. I really have some some questions about that. But yeah. I want to talk about Iron Circus. Like you say, it's the biggest comic book, indie comic book publisher in Chicago or just comic book publisher in general. It's the biggest comic book publisher in general in Chicago. I'm at this point where I would definitely know if there were another one. There are other small presses, but they're mostly like micro presses. And for a variety of reasons, sort of a lot of comics publishers are based just in the Pacific Northwest these days, hmm. which is kind of interesting and unusual. But as far as Midwest comics goes, we are one of a handful of publishers holding it down. And we're definitely the largest in the region right now. We've got, we're operating out of a, uh, 2,000 square feet in 
downtown Chicago on the border of Pilsen and Chinatown, if that means anything to anyone. <laughs> and we're trying like this year, 2017 has been the year we've been trying to ramp up publication from two or three books a year tops to 10 books a year, you know, just sort of in it for real now, as opposed to publishing my output, the output of friends and the projects that I conceive of. There's been a lot of and I'm using the royal we here, weirdly enough, because even <laughs> though Iron Circus is like to me and to Chicago and to small press comics in general, it's this thing. It's still fundamentally just me. It's it's me alone in a room. But we've been on the prowl for a lot more outputs, m- more books, more interesting comics that we think need a platform and need distribution and need the sort of opportunities we can provide. Because the big thing this year and near the end of, of 2016 was that Iron Circus got distribution. And that doesn't sound like a huge deal, but remember what I was saying before about those unusual problems comics has? One of the unusualist, most unusual problems comics has as an industry is there is one comics-specific distributor, and it's called Diamond, and it is using a model that was outdated 20 years ago that focuses on what I call floppies and what I imagine other people would call monthlies or magazine style comics, the kind where you walk into a comic book shop and that's what you expect to see 32 page saddle stitched comics about superheroes. And that's what they distribute. And that's by and large, the only thing they're interested in distributing as an example of why I was forced to seek distribution outside of diamond and therefore fundamentally outside the comic shop market was I brought them a book I published called The Less Than Epic Adventures of TJ and Amal. It was the complete edition published by me and written by a cartoonist named E.K. Weaver. It was Eisner nominated and the Eisner Awards are, I mean, they're they're the Academy Awards, they're the Oscars of comics, to put it in terms folks can understand. And Diamond didn't want to distribute it. And it's, I was just like, do you understand that this is an Eisner nominated book? And they didn't care. It wasn't about a man wearing his underwear outside his pants and a cape. So (laughs) they couldn't be bothered. And I was like, okay. And so that was, that was a major reason. I was like, okay, this is not going to work out. This is stifling. I'm at a bottleneck here. So and I documented this on Twitter, like oversharing business stuff on Twitter is kind of my herb. That's my deal. <laughs> and one of the things that I spent 2016 in the the latter half of 2016 and the early half of 2017 doing is talking about my my quest for distro. And this was something I knew it's like I I'd hit the ceiling on what I could do through diamonds. So I wanted what I referred to as real distro, if you can imagine the air quotes, a book distributor, a a distributor that primarily worked in prose and had connections in libraries and book clubs and retail shops and that sort of thing. And I eventually went to a convention, a a bookseller's convention in Chicago. And I had, I was was so overprepared. It was kind of embarrassing how overprepared I was. I showed up with folders that had, you know, my sales figures, the books that I was publishing already, my output, my my yearly gross profit. And I every single publisher, I every single sorry, distro I approached was very interested. So it turned out I was 
there is no need to be as amped up and paranoid as I was. It's like, I will prove I'm good enough for you. And they would let me get maybe halfway through my pitch, which was basically, I'm Iron Circus Comics. I'm this many years old. I put out this many books a year. This is how much money I made last year. This is how much money I'm on track to make this year. That's when it would end. And they would say, can I get a card? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. And so I had like blocked out two hours to go to the book expo and find distro. And I was done in 40 minutes. And I was just sort of sitting there going, oh, my God, this is going to work. This is actually going to work. And I periscoped it. I walked around periscoping sort of what the book expo was like. And I went on Twitter and I talked about what it was like talking to distro because I I know I'm followed by a lot of people who are also publishers or aspiring publishers who, for better or for worse, you know, they take a lot of cues from me. They took a lot of cues from me on Kickstarter. They took a lot of cues for me on their sort of search for talent and their search for distribution. And this is stuff they'd, they'd want to know. And it was, it finally happened. I finally got distribution. It was great. I'm with a company called consortium right now. And I was not aware at the time, but <laughs> they're, they're kind of the cool kid distro right now. I'm being iron circus is being distributed as part of their, their, their package of, of cool kids, small press comics. So I'm on there with, like Uncivilized Books and Silver Sprocket, I think, and 2D Cloud and No Brow, just like a bunch of art houses strong, but we're the people who are going to publish like the memoir of your year in Prague comic, you know, mm-hmm. that's us. So like the baby fantagraphics crowd is kind of where I'm at right now. And that's how I've been spending 2017, sort of getting used to the, to the distro model getting used to what it's like to have real distro and what they need from me and what I need from them. And the most stunning part of all this is as far as creation publication and street date goes in the small press, as we work at the speed of light compared to everybody else. Like I I conceive of something, I get it made, I kickstart it and I print it and seven months go by and that's screamingly fast by a lot of publishing standards. Whereas nowadays I need to be thinking about 2019 and that has required a paradigm shift mentally where it's like, but what's going to be in the spring 2019 catalog? What's going to be in the autumn 2019 catalog? And I still have creators coming to me going, gosh, I wish I could work with you, but my calendar is not going to be clear till like the end of 2017. And it's like, Oh, sweetie. <laughs> oh, oh honey oh darling if you can't get me something till 2020 that would actually be great because i have to worry about then too so what is but yeah what, what's a typical like day for you with with all of this that's going on i mean now that you've got distribution now that you're ramping up your output what is your day-to-day like with iron circus my husband calls it living la vida comforts cozers i get up usually around i want to say like four or five a.m not because I'm an early riser, but because my sleep pattern is completely jacked. <laughs> I get up around 4 or 5 a.m. I have an espresso. I sit down at my computer and I proceed to send 20 emails. And that is the majority of my day. The majority of my day is tweaking files, sending emails and doing editorial stuff because I am the only full-time editor Iron Circus has. I sometimes hire freelance editors to handle big projects with me, but... If I have a creator I'm working with one-on-one, they will send me pencils. And it takes me on average an entire day to go through a person's graphic novel and write down all the notes and get back to them on what I think they've produced. I'm also doing a lot of 
scouting, I guess is the best term. I'm going through Tumblr. <laughs> I'm going through Twitter. I'm looking who follows who. And when people talk about how Twitter isn't good for anything, that just means you're not using it right. Sorry, you don't know how to use Twitter. Because I found a lot of artists through Twitter. And I just sent off a contract to an artist who got retweeted by a friend because they're like, oh, wow, check out my amazing friend's art. I'm like, I certainly will. Would you like to publish a graphic novel through me? And as I mentioned before, I do a lot of anthologies. Coordinating anthologies behind the scene is incredibly, <laughs> incredibly complex because you're wrangling anything from 15 to 30 artists. And the way I currently run, it's not to be dismissive of people who don't do it this way, but it's not for funsies anymore. I have to get a lot of paperwork from people, a lot of W-9s. I have to get them to sign certain agreements before they can be published by me. And there's just a lot of paperwork I need from 15 to 30 people. And bless their hearts, some people are intimidated by something as simple as a W-9 or they, it just gets lost in the mix. Or there's just a lot of shoulder tapping and throat clearing to do behind people. And there are plenty of people shoulder tapping and throat clearing me too. Like there's emails that the minute I get done here, you know, I don't care. It's Saturday. There's shit that needs to get done. So I have to go do it. And it's just sort of standard issue, small business life, I guess you could say. So that's my day, like from 5am all the way through. At some point, my husband gets up, goes to work, comes home from work. <laughs> we have dinner. And that's like around 7, 8. I might get a nap in around 8. And the nap is usually two or three hours long. And then I get up and then I work again. <laughs> and there are no weekends. There are no vacations. The only time I'm ever really away from working with Iron Circus is when I'm traveling. And all of my travel for several years now has been work-related because I get invited to go places and do things and speak to people. And sometimes I make terrible decisions. Like this September, I think I'm spending exactly one weekend of this September at home. And in the final weekend of this September, I will actually, instead of flying home from D.C., where I'll be for SBX, the Small Press Expo, a really really awesome small press comics convention in Bethesda, Maryland. I'll be getting on a plane in Washington, D.C. and flying to Leeds, which is in England, mm -hmm. to go to the Thought Bubble event, which is another comics convention. And then when I'm done there, I'll be going to New York for 11 days to speak at New York Comic Con and do some stuff with Kickstarter because I actually have a title over at Kickstarter, I'm what they call a thought leader, which is mm. basically a person who uses the site in a way that Kickstarter thinks is really cool and good and would like to see more people using the site in. How did you first get started in comics? I know that's probably a, a question you're asked a lot, but for our audience, I'm sure they want to know, because it certainly sounds like this is something that you're you're super passionate oh, yeah. about. You wouldn't be spending weeks at a time away from home if this wasn't something that you loved. Yeah. But how did you first get started? My friends and I have a joke now where since comics have a higher profile, largely due to the fact that there's a lot of comic book based movies out these days, everything from Civil War and Black Panther and Deadpool all the way to my friend Dahmer. Like there's a lot of comics that are optioned and turned into film. So naturally the profile is going to be higher because there's a ton more money in film than comics, but people make the connection. So these days people occasionally find out what I do. And they're just like, oh, wow, you publish comics? I've been interested in getting into that. Like, do you have any tips or anything? And 
if I was being 100% with them, my first tip would be like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Tip number one, care a lot for 20 years. <laughs> I mean, that's where it's for, and frankly, it's more than 20 years for me. But like, you know, that's the baseline. Everyone is in comics because they love comics. Like there is no money in this industry. You know, it's like this is a film or television where you you come up with your one good idea and then you're a millionaire. Like, no, comics does not function that way. But I started reading comics when I was a little kid, and I grew up in what I consider to be the final golden age of the newspaper strip. And that was when Calvin and Hobbes was in the paper and Farside was in the paper. And those are the two go-to comics I read. I read Bloom County a lot too, but since I was a literal child, I didn't always get it. But I still remember sitting at the kitchen table when I was a little kid reading the Washington Post comic section, because back then they had a, they had like a huge comic section, like a two-part comic section. And that was the day that Calvin and Hobbes had their Tyrannosaurs in F-14s strip. So it was just these Tyrannosaurus Rexes in fighter planes, hmm. you know, <laughs> swooping down on Triceratopses. And I remember just thinking to myself, I don't understand how a person could make something like this. This is beyond amazing like how can you draw a tyrannosaurus this well and draw an airplane this well and put it in like a panel so that it looks this amazing how does a person get together all of these skills to think this up execute it and get it in the paper it blew my tiny mind and it's almost cliche these days for cartoonists to talk about how much they loved bill waterson's work and how much of an influence calvin and Hobbes had on them mm -hmm. but i mean it comes from a genuine place. There's a lot of people working in comics right now who are here because of Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah, I remember Calvin and Hobbes growing up. I remember just all those comics at the time. And I mean, it's something that I think a lot of people draw inspiration from, whether they go into cartooning or design or things like that. Did that early interest kind of spark you to study cartooning and art later on? Oh, God. My parents were not thrilled. <laughs> I come from a family of extreme overachievers. I was actually just tweeting about this, where we went from slave shacks to the Real Housewives of Potomac. That's the town I grew up in. It has its own oh, Real wow. Housewives series. <laughs> yeah. And it's like we went from slave shacks in Alabama to Real Housewives of Potomac in three generations. So they were black Republicans back when black people could ignore certain elements of the Republican Party. <laughs> And like the best way to refer to them the way my parents were and their friends is I think it's like you can't even say this anymore. But I used to say they were Bill Cosby Republicans Okay. in that they were. I know. Right. Like that's so poisoned now. Like I can't. But years ago, Bill Cosby gave this speech. It's like and like black conservatism is something that I find myself having to explain to a lot of people. Like I was raised by black conservatives. And what it is, is this doctrine that you have to be better than everyone else at all times mm -hmm. and you have to have status and you have to have money and you have to have respect and you have to do your hair a certain way and speak a certain way and get all A's in school mm -hmm. because you're going to have to work harder than the next little white kid to get anything. And I don't care what <laughs> your little white friend does is a phrase that comes out of every black Republican parent's mouth at some point. It's like, but we're going to the party. <laughs> I don't care what your little white friend does. You're staying in and you're studying because more was expected of you and the penalties for failure for you. 
your parents tried to communicate were so much more severe than any of your non-black friends. And you needed to sort of understand and internalize that. And my dad was a huge overachiever in that respect. And I'm talking college at 15 overachiever. And he became a doctor and then he became the owner of like a medical group. And the plan was I was supposed to be a doctor too. Hmm. And (laughs) at a young age, I understood that it was in my best interest to go along with it until I had enough miles between me and home to do what I wanted. Uh So the line was I was going to be a pediatric neurosurgeon because as far as my parents (laughs) could tell, there was only one black woman pediatric neurosurgeon in America. Uh And so they turned to me and they literally went, you can be the second. Hmm. And I was like, okay. (laughs) It was like, there was no arguing about this. It was just going to happen. So I was like, yeah, whatever. And my dad, I mentioned that he's Southern. He's from Alabama. And there is a social group, I mean, a social circle, a sort of upper class Southern black families where the most auspicious thing that can happen is you send your son to Morehouse and you send your daughter to spell. Yeah. I, I, have, to, yeah. I have to interject here. One, I'm from Alabama. Oh. Two, I know all about those black families. And three, I went to Morehouse. What's up? But, but hey. please, please continue because I'm going somewhere. Just, but please, please continue. Yeah. Hi there. I went to Spelman. I know. See, when, I was, when I was at Spellman, the big thing was, you know, Pulp Fiction had had come out recently. Uh-huh. And like, oh, you know, Samuel L. Jackson went here. You know, he went here, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like, okay, no one cares. Now, if you were Samuel L. Jackson, you fall down. And it was like sort of so clearly, even when you're eight, you know, when you're 18, you don't know anything. You're an idiot. But even at 18, I sort of understood that here I am at Spellman. The all-girls school, mm-hmm. literally across the street, is Morehouse, the all-boys school. I have been sent here for Re- a very specific reason, yeah. you know? <laughs> they even, do they still have that, those events where it's like the Morehouse boys and the Spelman girls get together and they escort each other and there's like a big speech and stuff? They still have that. <laughs> they still have it. Now, now we were kind of, now, we were sort of in the AUC kind of right at the same time. I think you left in 2000, right? I graduated, graduated in 2000. Yeah. I started Morehouse in 99. So oh, we kind of okay. like just passed each other. But yeah, they still have the whole like week of NSA stuff. And you go to, yeah. I think it's, do you go to Cosby? I remember, I remember vividly the long <laughs> yeah, lines of you waiting <laughs> to meet your Spellman sister. And like they, they yes! would take you up into, into, for people that are listening that are like Cosby, Spellman has like this theater yeah. slash, I don't know, auditorium. Giant building. Yeah. Giant. That's named after Bill Cosby's wife, Camille Cosby. But I remember them like taking us into Cosby and like leading you up. And they're like, this is your Spellman sister. By the way, never saw my Spellman sister after freshman year. No, no, absolutely not. It's such a relic. It's such a like, like you see like, like a giant shadowy child with a Barbie and a can and just putting together. Now kiss. Yes. And I remember they made us go to church afterwards. Like we went, we had to go yes. to King Chapel and like, you're sitting with this person who you don't know. And they're like, <laughs> it's so, it's such a bizarre, like, it's, it's so bizarre. Relic. It is, it's very much a relic. Yeah, I remember that for a while there, while I was there, I don't know if you would have been like across the street at the same time, but when I was there, there was a changeover in presidents of the college and the president that the incoming 
president was heard to say like, oh, when I went to Spelman, because she was alum, when I went to Spelman, oh, we had curfews and we had dress codes. And I see we don't have that anymore. And I just think it's kind of a shame, don't you? And the whole school went completely nuts. Like, if you try to dress code us, if you try to give us a curfew, like we're 12-year-old girls, you know. And it's, oh, it's so old-fashioned. But I have to admit, the only reason I went, okay, that's where, like, this story was going. The only reason I went, my dad, he, like, that was part of the dream. Like, he wanted his son to go to Morehouse mm-hmm. and his daughter to go to Spelman. And he told me, point blank, you can go wherever you want. But if you go to Spelman, I'll pay your way. And Ah. I was like, yeah. And again, at 18, you're an idiot, right? So, but (laughs) I was like, the one intelligent decision I made it as a teenager, it's like, hmm, graduating college debt free sounds like a good idea. I guess I'll do that. (laughs) That that was like the, uh, I think I like applied to two or three safety schools or whatever. I think I got accepted to Duke, but like. I would have had to like do something. There would have been loans involved going to Duke. Mm-hmm. And my dad was like, if you go to Spelman, I'll pay. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I, how did I end up at Morehouse? Cause I didn't even apply to Morehouse. Whoa. Like, so the whole thing with, with, I, I, for people that are listening, that probably know, you know, Morehouse and Spelman, of course, have a very auspicious slash dubious yeah. reputation in the black community oh, yeah. in general. Nobby, yeah. yeah, but like the whole thing for me was like I was just trying to get out of Alabama in general. So I'm from Selma, Alabama. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I was just trying to get out. Like, yeah. I mean, everyone knows Selma from, you know, civil rights movement, of course. More people yeah. now know it because of the movie. But oh, absolutely, I, yeah. I, I was sort of in that first generation right after Bloody Sunday. And mm-hmm. it's like the whole environment there is so weird because they're trying to, of course, uphold now these new laws but everybody is still like super racist uh, oh absolutely yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i just had to get out of that whole environment in general and i remember i mean i did pretty well in school. i'm not trying to brag or anything but i did pretty well in school <laughs> and i mean i got scholarships to all these different places and the only reason i went to morehouse was because that's where i got the most money yeah yeah and my, and and my mom was totally like i'm not reason- paying yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I, I I have to say this Spellman, it's like everything they say about it, it's true. Oh my god, it's like it's real snobby. It's real sort of high on itself. It's got a, it's just it, it is where the smartest kid who's kind of obnoxious about it in class goes. Mm-hmm. So it's an entire school full of girls like that, you know. And like this is the kind of school that offered those special programs. At least they did when I was there, where. If you went for five years, including summer classes, you could double major mm-hmm. in medicine and engineering. Yep. And it's like, get over yourself. <laughs> like, who needs a double major in engineering and medicine? We had, Go outside. We had something similar. Yeah. We had uh, we had a dual degree program for if you did like two sciences, you could get five. You get come out in five years, you'd have two degrees. And I started out yeah. in that dual degree program. And no. it was, it was, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Yeah. It was a mess. <laughs> yeah. It was just, oh, God. And I just, like, I came away from that school with, again, a college degree and no debt. So I consider it a win. Amen. But at the end of the day, when I got that degree, I just, like, I went to my dad and I gave it to him. I was like, this is for you because you wanted it more than I did. <laughs> so as- And I'm not even saying I would have made an intelligence choice if my parents had just, like, turned me out and went, okay, there you go. F- find a college. You know, I'm not even saying I would have made a remotely intelligent choice, but... Spellman was not my scene on multiple levels. Like I'm that broad who 
just doesn't care about so much everyone at Spellman clearly does. Like for starters, it was oh, it was do you remember Creflo Dollar? I do. Oh my god. He would park a van out in front of Spellman every Sunday and it was like, come to the free church service and be on TV. <laughs> and like so many girls fell for it. And it's like, why? It's like I'm gonna be on TV. I'm gonna be on the church service and I'm gonna run home and I'm gonna see myself. And it's like why? It's just, Anyway, I can I can only laugh because this is bringing back all of my like freshman year. Remember, I'm like crying <laughs> over here, remembering like well, freshman year because they would have like a uh, new birth would send these huge mm-hmm. charter buses to like yeah. pick people up and take them to church so they could be on television. They had charter buses that would take you to the club. I don't know. Yeah, if you remember yeah. those? They would have. Oh the- my God. OK. OK. Real talk. Real talk. Real talk. Okay. Seriously. Okay, so I've mentioned <laughs> where I come from, and I've mentioned my dad. He is a doctor, and we lived in the suburbs of Potomac, right. and we went to Spelman and Morehouse, blah, blah, blah. I mentioned also I had a brother. Now, around that time, that's when, like, all the mainstream rap was, like, gangster rap. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, like, Snoop Dogg, and it was Dre. And to a lesser degree, it was, like, you know, like, Puff Daddy and whatever. But my brother desperately desperately wanted to be a gangster rapper desperately. <laughs> and instead of going to class because he went to morehouse too in the end okay instead of it was a legacy admit but instead of going to class what he ended up doing was every night he'd go out to the club this is his idea of getting you know air quotes discovered he would go out to the club with his mixtape and he would hope to bump into somebody. That was his grand plan. Just instead of doing homework, go to the club and hope someone from like LaFace Records shows up so he can hand them a mixtape. It was so stupid. Wow. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he ended up going to school for six years and still didn't graduate with a degree. Oh, because my God. He wasted so much time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My best story ever is the time we were both home on summer vacation and This wasn't like the same as, you know, Mr. So-and-so, you've been served, like when you get divorce papers or whatever. Mm -hmm. But like when we were at home, a person came to the door and knocked on it and they were like, hey, I have a delivery here for, you know, my brother. And my mom was like, yeah, I'll take it. And the person's like, no, I have to give it to him. It's like, oh, Oh. what is happening? You know, (laughs) so my brother came downstairs and he got it. And they're like, you are him. And it's like, yeah. And it's like, and he gave him the, the big manila, like eight and a half by 11 manila envelope. And inside was like the most polite don't come back letter from Morehouse ever. <laughs> oh, God. It was, just, it, was very, it was very like, it's like, you're not ready to take your education seriously. So please just take a moment off, decide what you want. And we'd be happy to consider readmission after you've had some time to reflect. Like that was the kind of language. And my dad came home from work and my mom was just immediately like, look at this. It was a Friday Mm -hmm. and my dad came up from work and he looked at it and he left again and he was gone all weekend and he came back Monday and it turned out he had flown down to Atlanta. Oh my God. And he had talked to the administration (gasps) and he came back and he was like, okay, you're back in under the most restrictive (laughs) academic probation that they even have. You have to go to class. You have to get good grades and you have to like do this like check in sheet and everything so that they know you're doing everything you need to do. You have to do this. I can't do this again. This is your last chance. And he still fucked it up. Wow. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I can see how when you're there, especially if you if you are coming from it's your first time away from home, you've got all this freedom. And I mean, Atlanta in the late Mm -hmm. 90s was lit. 
I mean, post-Olympics, sort of post-Freaknik-ish. I mean, yeah, it's like Freaknik was dying when I was there. Yeah, like it's it was such a a great time to be in the city. It is mm-hmm. so easy as a freshman, especially at that time, to get caught up in everything but your education. I mean, oh, absolutely. You've got the absolutely. strip. You've got Spellman. You've got you've got <laughs> buses. You have charter buses that take you to and from the club. It is well, so easy to get caught up. Yeah, well, the club just sort of sees you and like they do that cartoon thing when the dollar signs pop in their eyes and just like, oh, my God, these kids from they're free for the first time and they're going to these ritzy schools. Oh, my God. Hurry, get them in the club. Yeah. Charge them $14 for a beer. Do it. (laughs) So as I was doing my research on you, there's actually some some thing that you mentioned about. It's a quote you mentioned about Spellman that I wanted to to ask you about. Oh, yeah, go for so it. So you, you said that your art education consists of four years at Spellman, which were helpful, and a year-long program at the School of the Art oh. Institute of Chicago, which was a complete waste of fucking time. <laughs> yeah. More on that yeah. if there's interest. I'm interested. Oh, uh, Okay. So the thing about Spellman is when I was there, again, it's been a long time. I don't know if this is still the case. But when I was there, they did not offer BFAs. Mm -hmm. They only offered BAs. So I ended up getting a Bachelor of Studio Art. And I had decided by the time I was, you know, a, uh, a junior over at Spellman that Atlanta was not for me. When I was there, it felt all the world like an office park surrounded by suburbs. Like, it was not my kind of scene. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have to get out of here. <laughs> the same way you kind of felt about Selma, I felt about Atlanta. I hadn't connected with anyone at the school. We didn't like the same things. We didn't go to the same places. And the thing that sticks with me to this day as sort of a, a good illustration of how I didn't really make any lasting connections at the school is that was when Disney was experimenting with showing Studio Ghibli movies in America. But people had really caught on this was a thing yet. Like, you know, this is pre-Netflix commissioning fucking anime. Mm-hmm. This is this is when if you were lucky, you heard about one or two showings somewhere. And I was reading I think it was Creative Loafing. I was reading Creative Loafing ah. and there was <laughs> there was a, a thing that's like, oh yeah, in this this mall kind of sort of in the sticks of far flung Atlanta there's going to be a showing of Princess Mononoke. And I was like, oh, my God, I get to see Princess Mononoke on a big screen. And it's to this day, it's like one of my, my favorite Ghibli movies. And I went around to the dorms and I was like, who wants to come see Princess Mononoke with me? And they're all like, <laughs> what's that? And I explained it. And like to a person, everyone was like, you're going to ride the train for an hour and a half to go see a cartoon. <laughs> And I was like, no, it's it's not a cartoon. It's anime. It's from Japan. And it's like cartoons are different over there. And they're like, I'm not riding the train for an hour to go see a cartoon. And in the end, I ended up going by myself and like navigating. You know, again, this is before smartphones. Right. So I had like write down directions on a piece of paper and wander around out, you know, get, completely get bus schedules and everything. Exactly. Yeah. So I had to do all this crazy shit to go see Princess Mononoke. And it was still worth it because I still love it. And I'm super glad I got to see it on a big screen. And I remember I was sitting. I not only had to see it alone with no friends. I was sitting in a movie theater with maybe four or five other people. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, exactly. So I was sitting here, it's like, this is not my school and this is not my town. I'm not staying when this is over. I'm not staying. And it was like 
that has become this symbol of how this is not for me. Interesting. What movie theater yeah, was it? But God, I couldn't tell you. It's so long ago. But that's part of the reason I applied to the School of the Art Institute. Uh-huh. And I applied to a lot of schools. I applied to CalArts. I applied to uh, NYU. Again, I was throwing stuff at a wall to see what stuck because I just knew I could get my parents to help me pay moving costs if I was going to pursue an advanced degree in anything. You know, like yeah. I'm talking animation, film, whatever caught my eye. I was like, if somebody offered an MA or an MFA program in it, I'd go for it. And School of the Art Institute wound up accepting me. And to this day, I kind of wonder what might have happened if, you know, CalArts had said yes or NYU had said yes. My life would have been completely different. But I went to Chicago on the strength of the School of the Art Institute taking me in and telling me, we cannot let you into the MFA program because you do not have a BFA. So you need to do a one-year-long post-baccalaureate program. And I was like, okay, whatever. Just get me out of here. <laughs> and I ended up moving to Chicago. And that year was so pointless. I hear the school is much better about it now. But the period I spent there, they were deeply, deeply anti-figurative, anti-representational, anti-narrative. They were pushing an agenda of abstract conceptualism. And if you weren't down, you were a problem. Hmm. And I'm not an abstractionist. I'm not a conceptual artist. I lack representative work. I went there specifically to be taught how to paint. Like when they asked, why are you here? It's like, I'd like someone to teach me how to paint. And I didn't learn a fucking thing. I didn't. And I was sort of one of many casualties of that program. Mm -hmm. I left and there was a graffiti artist there on scholarship. You know, and when I say graffiti artist, I mean, amazing. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm going to just drop a whole bunch of stupid names. There's a graffiti artist named Zephyr. You know, he was like on that level. Mm -hmm. And he left. He was like, this is bullshit. I'm going to culinary school. I'm not learning anything here. <laughs> and there was a girl there who was from one of the countries that doesn't exist anymore in Central slash Eastern Europe. Okay. And she had had a very traditional European style academic art education. And she did a lot of figurative work. And, you know, she was gone. And just you could see us dropping like flies because it's like this. We're not part of this program we're going to not finish and i ended up finishing technically which at the end of the day i'm kind of sad about because i can't technically call myself an art school dropout and <laughs> i definitely feel like one because i mentally checked out maybe four or five months into that program so there's two interesting things that i'm noticing here one it seems like and part of this i think is just based off of what I know in terms of how the AUC is, how it can be this weird hotbed of like respectability politics and tradition, yes. but yet yes. it's the modern world and we don't, well, actually I did, I wasn't a cotillion. I was going to say we don't do cotillions oh, and stuff. I got but an invitation to a cotillion <laughs> and my parents didn't tell me about it. And I was at the <clears> kitchen <throat> table one day and they mentioned sort of casually like that cotillion invitation. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what cotillion invitation? And it's like, my dad was like, yeah, you got invited to be part of some cotillion thing. And I'm like, you didn't tell me. And they just gave me this look like, would you have even been slightly interested? Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, but I would have liked to know. Right. But like, the I'm not a cotillion girl. I'm not a, you know, white dress below the knees girl. I'm not a go to the club girl. I'm not a go to church girl. I'm not like, 
overachiever girl. I don't take direction well. There's just like so many reasons mm-hmm. that like Feldman was sort of this neutral experience for me. And I know there are women who talk about it with like tears in their eyes when they went and how much they loved it and like sort of the sisterhood that they felt there. And like I felt nothing. Like those weren't my people. That wasn't my scene. Yeah. Just like I this isn't for me. I felt that same way about Morehouse. Like it feels like you had to be a certain type of person yeah. to really kind of get the most out of the experience. But what it sounds like is that's how it was for you at Spellman. That's Absolutely. also how it was for you at SAIC. It was the same kind of yeah. thing where they wanted to try to put you in this box and Absolutely. you couldn't be in this box. No, fuck that box. Fuck the box. <laughs> <laughs> fuck the box. And like this kind of carried over, I think in a lot of ways though, like this sounds very cheesy and, you know, rose color 2020, but uh, rear view mirror. But in a way it kind of prepared me because one of the things that I harp on a lot these days in comics is if I had, after I finished with school, you know, I was in my early twenties and deciding, okay, time to enter the working world. If I had decided to go the traditional route and do it again, imagine the air quotes, the correct way I would have washed out of comics 10 years ago. I would have been a comics failure and I would have, I would be doing something else because comics was not interested in anything I had to say at that time. Mm -hmm. And while there are black women publishing with Marvel and DC or whatever, and there's a lot more black and person of color presence in comics in general now, when I was getting going, like, no, absolutely not. And if I had been part of the first wave, you know, I would have been broken against the gates. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, other people climbed over my bodies for the actual assault. And I always think of it in terms of anyone who's seen Saving Private Ryan, like it shows the the D-Day invasion with the vehicles coming up to the beach and the first wave of vehicles when the door drops down, like everyone on them dies. Yeah. Like they're just raked with machine gun fire. I would have been in that. You know, it's like that would have been me, figuratively speaking, if I had tried to enter comics as it was at that time. And so I turned to the only sort of structure that wasn't really a structure, which was web comics at the time. It was online comics because there's no one to stop you from making your comics and there was no one to stop you from finding your audience and doing it your way. And if my life has taught me anything, it's like I have to do it my way or it's just not going to work out. And I spent <laughs> like decades, I guess at this point, it's weird to think about it in, in that way, but I spent over 15 years, 20 years, just sort of forging my own path, if I can sound slightly dramatic, and making my own way and figuring out how to do it without anybody's permission and anybody's sort of guidance. And I look sort of behind me in this sort of trail of destruction I've left behind me. And there's so much that I was forced to do out of necessity that now people just sort of go, well, that's just what you do. Well, obviously you did it that way because that's the way it's done. And Mm -hmm. it's like, it's hard to communicate that when I was 23, 24, I had people telling me every day, this is why you're never going to work in comics because you're being this unprofessional by putting yourself online and by publishing books yourself. No one's going to respect that and blah, blah, blah. And this is why you're self-publishing because no one wants you and no one will want you because you're self-publishing. So it's an Ouroboros. It's a snake eating its tail. So, And that's why you're unemployable. And if you just do it correctly, you'd have better luck and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, no, that, that wasn't the case at all. And we all knew it. But 
it wasn't something that you said out loud back then. There were no black women who worked at Marvel and there were no black women who were prominent in comics because, gee, I don't know why. I guess there just aren't. Yeah. So <laughs> now it's like I've got this publisher and I've got these people working for me and I've got one of the things that is actually slightly terrifying, but also very flattering is I have a lot of friends who are in academia. They're professors at colleges or they're, they're teaching high schoolers. And every once in a while, someone will say, hey, I know you'll get a kick out of this. Ha ha ha. One of the kids I'm working with just told me that it's their dream to be published by you. And it's like, oh, that's terrifying. Because <laughs> 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 it's like, again, I still feel like that person who's just kind of working it out and figuring it out and going my own way. And, and I, God, this sounds really dismissive, but I don't mean it to be. Now I have all these sort of like baby ducklings kind of in my wake following the path that I forged. And it's like, Nowadays, it's, oh, if you want to be in comics, what you do is you graduate school and then you make a webcomic for three or four years and then you publish it on Kickstarter and then you do the, the con circuit and then you do this, that and the other. And if you want to find a publisher, that's the time to find it. That's how you do it there. That's the roadmap. Mm-hmm. And there was no map when I was 22. There was nothing. There was you worked for Marvel or DC. You got incredibly lucky and taken on by one of these scant handfuls of independent comics publishers or small press comics publishers, or there was nothing. That was it. That's what the comic industry was. It was still sort of reeling from the 90s. Yeah. And when Marvel declared bankruptcy and, you know, a third, one third of all comic shops closed and every distributor except Diamond, remember them, yep. went out of business. And it's like the industry was on the decline. And again, that was a time when people like me were getting into it when it was comics was actively dying. <laughs> so there is no room for growth and there is no room for me. And nowadays, it's, there are people who sort of treat it like, well, obviously, that's what you did. It's like, no, it wasn't obvious at the time, actually. And nevertheless, she persisted. <laughs> well, I had no choice. You know, it was one of those things where if you're going to be in comics, this is the only way you're going to be in comics. You're going to have to do it all yourself because that's the only option. Now, earlier you talked about Kickstarter and, you know, you say you're you're a thought leader at Kickstarter. Yeah. You are someone who has had a colossal amount of a <laughs> success with Kickstarter. And yeah, you, know, you did your, your first project in 2009. You said that. Yeah. And you've done now 13, is that me? 13 I've done, Kickstarters? I've done 13 Kickstarters and I'll be doing my 14th next month and then a 15th before the end of the year. And yeah, it's one of those things where now, again, the model I use where I'm a publisher that pr- uses Kickstarter as a pre-order platform is just the done thing. And when I was doing it, there were people haranguing me on podcasts and message boards talking about how that's not what Kickstarter's for. And you look like a hobo when you do that. And why don't you just go on the corner with a hat and just, you know, like play guitar because that's basically what you're doing. That's begging. That's embarrassing. And if you want to publish a book and you can't afford it, put on a suit and go to the bank and get a loan like a normal person. Yikes. Yeah. And you know what? Those people, there are three versions of them these days, like eight years later, they either say nothing, they watch what I do and copy it, or they pretend they never said anything at all. But <laughs> too bad for them. I hold a grudge like no other. So it's, you know, it's like you can sit there and pretend you don't remember, but I do. 
Because I remember that how hot you were to talk some shit, man. I remember that. Yeah. And now it's like you're trying to fave my tweets and send me emails and whatever. It's like, no, yeah. no, that door is closed. <laughs> what yeah, the- I said on Twitter recently something like, uh, this year's, that's unprofessional, is next year's, do you offer consulting? And yeah. That's, that's yeah. because that's literally been my experience. Yeah. <laughs> what did you learn from that first Kickstarter project? It's like, here's the thing that I kind of had a hard time understanding because I knew Kickstarter was an awesome idea from day one because I had already been crowdfunding. It, like that's, I guess that's the term we use now. I had already been crowdfunding before there was a crowdfunding platform. And so had so much of comics, which is why I didn't understand where the shit talk came from. Because when I had my web comic, it was called Templar, Arizona. And I decided I wanted to sell print editions. And back then, the only way to do this was to have pre-orders. And you would take pre-orders through PayPal. And you would go to the printer, get the quote, come back to your fan base and say, the printer says this is going to cost $6,000. I need $6,000 to print this. Here is my PayPal address. The book will be, I don't know, $15. And I will put a little thermometer graphic on my site. And every day I will update it. And, you know, no one gets anything until I can afford the print run. Right. And that was dangerous because PayPal's end user licensing agreement has a statement about how many days can pass between taking payment for a product and delivery of the product. And that's like, I want to say 30 days or 60 days, however long it was, it wasn't long enough to fund a book, get it printed and get it out to everybody. So if one or two people had decided to complain or try and get a refund, that could have shut down my PayPal account. And so my primary means of income would have just been gone. But that didn't happen, you know, and I funded a lot of books that way. So I already knew this model of sort of pre-ordering books on a platform could work. And the only thing Kickstarter did to change that is they made it transparent And they made it a dedicated site as opposed to using PayPal under the table in a way strictly forbidden in the EULA. And I was like, oh, that's such a good idea. And (laughs) the first project I ran was for um, Poorcraft, which remains my best-selling book on Iron Circus right now. And it was basically the book I always wanted to do, but I had no money for because I would have to hire an artist to do it. And, you know, I'm not making anyone work for free. That's jacked up. And comics has a huge problem with refusing to pay creatives. So I couldn't ask someone to do it for free. So when I was told about Kickstarter, I was like, oh my God, it's perfect for this project. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I think, gosh, I don't even remember how much I asked for. I think I asked for like $6,000 and it ended up funding for $12,000. And I was, oh my God, I was so happy. And just for a laugh, like back then, there were people telling me $12,000 is too much. That's not what Kickstarter is for. Oh, God. Yeah, $12,000. <laughs> first, you, first, you can't use much. Kickstarter. Now that you raise the money, it's like, now yeah. that's not what you're supposed to use it for. Why are all these people in your pocket like that? I know, right? Basically, I think, I, like, oh, I hate this term because it's like, it's so misused and abused. Fucking haters. Just haters. <laughs> like, there's a lot of, okay, and I'm going to offend like half your audience, but whatever. There are a lot of, not exclusively, but predominantly straight white guys in comics who are conceptually okay Mm -hmm. with the concept of equality and 
level playing field, but in practice, literally can't deal with it when the black girl laps them. Mm. So that has been my experience. I've, I have been on the receiving end of a lot of dudes who, for example, post to public areas how they are, and this is absolutely literally true, not comfortable with the amount of money I make on Kickstarter. Like, who fucking asked your opinion? <laughs> like, I'm not comfortable with the amount of money Spike stands to walk away f- with, away from this Kickstarter with. Like, who says that? Wow. And there, yeah, and there are a lot of people to this day that are like, oh, yeah, she copied me. And it's like, I would love to hear how you worked it out in your mind that <laughs> me literally inventing a way to use Kickstarter was copying you. Yeah, straight white guys in design yeah. are like that too. It's Yeah, oh, it, I'll bet, I'll bet. They love to sort of play woke, but then when it gets down to brass tacks, they cannot deal. Yeah. And comics now, I think, is so pervasive because uh, it's tied into film and television and entertainment oh, yeah. in general, where now you can't you can't escape comics, whether you were into them as a kid or not. They're everywhere. Yeah. And it's, oh, I'm so crabby right now. I'm so crabby because, like, there's a lot of industries. All right, I love comics. I love comics as they are. I don't consider them a rest stop on the way to film and television. Okay. But there's a lot of people who do. And they assume the only reason I make comics is that comics are like fancy storyboards for movie pitches. Hmm. And it's like, no, I don't give a shit about movies. <laughs> I don't care about TV. It's like, I'm not going to, if they roll up to my door and knock on it and they're all like, we would like you to write a season of, you know, television show you love. I'm not going to say no, but I'm here for the comics and we don't have to be anything else. But I think a lot of people coming into comics now, not all, but a lot are coming in with this mindset that's like, oh, what we need is we need a stable like Marvel has. We need 15 superheroes that we can just make movies about in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those deals where it's like Marvel has been functioning for decades. They didn't come up with those 15, 20 superheroes overnight. Those were the concerted efforts of dozens, if not hundreds of people working for 50 or 60 years. Yeah, And, That's where those characters come. You cannot churn up. You cannot magic decades of knowledge and familiarity and goodwill out of nothing and then become Marvel tomorrow. And if that's your plan for comics, simply by design, you will not live to see that plan to fruition because it's something that takes 50, 60, 70 years. How do we make comics a better place? Oh, okay. Here's the deal. You make comics a better place by investigating the vanguard of comics, reading what's being done in the small and alternative press, and by and large, ignoring anything to do with superheroes. Superheroes are not the future of comics. They're not the largest comics market. They're not where the most interesting stuff is happening. They're not where tomorrow's incredibly hot shit creators are functioning right now. And it shows. What has changed a lot in the industry in the past couple of years, or rather past decade, I guess you could say, is... It is no longer dominated by the magazine-style, floppy-style comics that Marvel and DC are putting out. Marvel and DC compile bestsellers lists, and they talk about their best-selling books. They only care about the books 
that are magazine style. They only care about the floppy comics. So, of course, that list is going to look like superhero comics are doing great. The magazine style comic market has been stagnating for years. The graphic novel market has been experiencing double digit growth for years. I've heard it said in a few platforms that graphic novels are the only part of the book market currently blowing up. Hmm. And a lot of that has to do with big dogs deciding they want to play too. And by big dogs, I'm talking about Scholastic, you know, the only company that can walk into a school and set up a table and go <laughs> buy these. Yeah. And I mean, Raina Tegelmeyer's latest book through Scholastic had a 500,000 number initial run. Initial. Wow. So no reprints. They decided we just need half a million copies on opening day. That's insane. Yeah. That's something Superman can't fucking touch, man. You know what I mean? And again, there's also that massive market of graphic novels that are being imported from Europe and most more so from Japan. And the people who import, translate, and sell these books, people like Seven Seas or Viz, they've been quietly mm-hmm. chugging along for mm-hmm. years. And they've been selling tens of thousands of books for years, but they're never factored into these bestsellers lists because they're not part of that scene. And I foresee a future where, quite frankly, Marvel, DC, and all the other sort of cake publishers are sort of hunkered down in their bunker and they've got their fingers in their ears and they're just going, things are great. Things are great. Things are great. Meanwhile, it's like, it's like that one, God, remember that children's book, the bear who wasn't where a bear goes and falls asleep in a cave and a city springs up around it. Marvel and DC are that bear in that cave and they love that cave. And everyone who's in that cave with them thinks that cave's the best thing ever, Mm -hmm. but they're completely content to ignore the, hive of activity growing up and around them and dwarfing them. And I think that's just going to accelerate in 10 or 15 years when these kids who are growing up reading um, Amulet and Bone and Ghosts and Drama and Smile and all these other sort of kid-focused books, they're going to grow up. And they're going to, in 10, 15 years, they're going to want to make comics of their own. And they're not going to give a shit about Superman. You know, Superman yeah. is going to be a movie star to them, not a comic, not a comic book character. And those kids are going to turn to the alternative market. And maybe they're going to get scouted by Scholastic and Abrams and all the other big deal publishers that are looking at this double digit graphic novel growth and being like, yeah, give me a piece of that. So if you want to improve comics, if you want to see where comics are going, if you want to see what's going to be the hot new shit in like five to ten years, you need to start reading stuff that's being put out by like uncivilized books and no brow and fantagraphics and last gasp and youth in decline and all these other small press publishers like I look at comics. <laughs> and <laughs> in 10 years, people are going to be like, Oh wow. Did you see that new movie? It's like, yeah, I read it. When was the comic a decade ago? Yeah. I think Hollywood's going to continue to predate on comics. And I think that the Hollywood element is going to get stronger in comics and i'm not thrilled about that because when money shows up people who aren't particularly interested in the art form show up with it Mm -hmm. and the most graphic sort of incarnation of this i can think of is the san diego comic-con which is basically turned into for entirely too much of the community a pitch fest 
yeah. where it's like, no, I'm, I'm not a waiting room for film. I'm my own industry. Thank you very much. But I think at the end of the day, people like that will be outnumbered by people who just love comics as a medium and are just here for the comic books and here for the graphic novels and here for the web comics. And the accessibility is so much higher. And like nowadays, if you are 18 and you want to put a comic on the internet, all you have to do is get on Tumblr, get a free website on Tumblr, maybe beg and harangue your parents into getting you a domain name that redirects to the Tumblr. That's strictly optional. And then just, you know, draw your comic and upload it. And it's free now. Like I had to pay to get my webcomic some space. And it's the sort of all the walls, all the hurdles, all the curbs that were tripping up creators who weren't part of that classic model that would have doomed me if I tried to play along. All of those are gone now. Mm -hmm. There are no more gatekeepers that matter. There are no more sort of ways to stop new creators that cannot be walked around. Yeah. And that's incredibly exciting. And I think I say it a lot, but I think comics is um, currently in a new golden age. Like things have not been this good for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And like beyond living memory. When I was getting into comics, the predominant sort of thought pattern was we've got 20 years at most mm -hmm. and then we're just going to be gone. Whereas now people like, I can't wait for the next 10 years. Yeah. There's a vibrancy that's going on in particularly in indie comics right now. That yeah. reminds me a lot of like the early web, like early, well, I'd say like late nineties, early two thousands web before it got all, just, I don't know, fucked up with <laughs> social media and everyone yeah. trying to be a brand and everything yeah, yeah. like that. There's Before I, Wendy's I, was the cool Twitter. <laughs> right, right. Before Wendy's <laughs> before Wendy's was cool Twitter, before Hamburger Helper had a mixtape, you know, that kind of uh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, just like, uh, yeah. I mean, it's inevitable at the end of the day, but yeah. What are you excited about at the moment? Oh, God. Okay. I'm putting together, you know, I can announce this because this is going up September 11th, I guess. I'm putting together an anthology. I'm putting together two anthologies, actually. One of the things Iron Circus has kind of been known for, like part of the whole Iron Circus, or again, using that word way too much, is we publish erotic comics and predominantly by women. So the authors of the comics are predominantly, not all, but predominantly women. And we put together an anthology called Smut Peddler. Mm. And what it is is an anthology of erotic comics by women, mostly, for everyone. And it's been doing gangbusters on Kickstarter. And it has kind of launched, it's been a launching point for like this resurgence of erotic comics in the small press. And it's been super exciting. And this year, we released our first full-color erotic anthology and our first themed erotic anthology, which was called Smut Peddler Presents My Monster Boyfriend. And, you know, <laughs> does what it says on the tin. It's about monster boyfriends and people who have them. And it got especially funny recently because that new Guillermo del Toro movie came out. The the the, the previews for it called The Shape of Water. Oh, yeah, yeah, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, like, People are like, oh, my fucking God, it's like my monster boyfriend. The movie. <laughs> it's like, yes, that's the thing. Chicks dig this. And, you know, I, I was making all these jokes, like guys going, what do women want? I just don't know. And women are over here like slime dick. <laughs> 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 like, yeah, this is, there's weird shit out there people are into. And like it was kind of 
it's kind of fun to sort of ride that wave and be all like, hey, look at us. We are one step ahead of Guillermo del Toro. Buy my monster boyfriend now. So there's that. But we'll be putting out a new anthology, erotica anthology in 2017 that is also themed and also full color. And it is called Smut Peddler Presents Sex Machine. And it is about robots, AI, androids, things that are robots, not programs, not technically alive, you know, that sort of thing. That is your boyfriend now or girlfriend mm-hmm. or romantic partner. I don't know how you would gender an AI, but just, you know, that is going to be the theme of the new erotica anthology. And then the theme for another anthology that we're going to announce in August. So by now people should probably know about it. It might still be taking admissions even at this point called FTL y'all. And the theme of FTL y'all, it'll be open submission. It'll be middle grade readers and up, and it'll be a black and white anthology. The theme of it is six months from now, someone will anonymously upload schematics to pastebin. And if properly followed, those schematics will allow you to build a faster than light engine out of $200 in easily available parts. So space travel is instantly democratized and within reach of the majority of the human population. If you can't do it yourself, you know someone who can. And the anthology is just about what happens in the wake of that civilization changing moment. Wow. And it's just called FTL y'all. Cause it's like, you know, the people's faster than light travel. Mm-hmm. And the tagline for the book is get me out of here. <laughs> and it's just sort of like very much inspired by current events. Right, you know? right, right. Like, okay, no, fuck this. I'm going to Mars. And I'm really excited about like what I'm going to get from that submissions process because I think what makes or sinks a really good anthology project, not just comics, but prose too, is the theme. And if it's too vague, no one knows what's, what to expect. If it's not sort of focused enough, like if the theme is like, Everybody who lives in Scranton, I'm like, well, I, I still don't know what that book's about. Whereas FTL, y'all, has got a super fun concept. And every time I tell anybody about it, they're like, their eyes open up. And they're like, oh, that sounds fun. And I'm like, good. That's the reaction I want. Those are the two anthology projects scheduled for next year. And I have a, a couple graphic novel projects scheduled for next year. I'm pretty excited about two. One of them, <laughs> one of them is very of the times. It's scheduled for release April 20th of 2018 and it's called how do I smoke weed and it's it's a guide a comic book guide meant for people who are sort of looking around and seeing increased incidents of legalization and decriminalization and maybe they are good little girls and boys and they spent their life curious but not necessarily interested in breaking the law Mm -hmm. and now they're presented with this world of vaping edibles volcanoes and friends who smoke openly and they're all like, I have no idea what to do. Like maybe I'm interested, but I have no idea what to do. And how do I smoke weed is written by avid smokers of weed who live in the Pacific Northwest where it is legal. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be pretty much about everything you would ever want to know about different strains, different effects, everything from head highs to couch lock why people cook with weed and why you shouldn't use recipes from the seventies. Like you definitely shouldn't use recipes from the (laughs) seventies and just, just sort of like everything anyone would want to know. It's going to be a little compact, like 80 page book. And I'm really excited to get that out 
and roll it out in time for more widespread legalization. Make sure Jeff Sessions get a copy of that. <laughs> I'll send a whole crate to his if, office. If he hasn't been carted out <laughs> on his ears, please make sure he gets that. I'll send it to him in prison. <laughs> do you have a dream project you love to work on or love to, to do? God, yes. And I feel stupider every day for not like taking the initiative sooner. I was really, really into Janelle Monet when she first came out. Mm. And she had this mini film, a, a music video. And it was about a far-flung future where there was obvious sort of, it was very Afrofuturistic, where there were overtones of sort of antebellum slave auctions going on. But at the same time, it was about androids sort of, not even like servants, like toys like these robots that were like dolls amusements like toys from the wealthy being auctioned off and all the toys were her like she was the model of the android was called cindy mayweather and it showed her during the whole course of the video just walking down the runway and the prices going up 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 Mm -hmm. and it made this whole world like just you know what i'm gonna actually look up the name while i'm sitting here Janelle it's Monet. um it's not the not the arc android that came after that but i, I remember what you're talking about because it was like her first sort of metropolis. big single metropolis yeah, yeah yeah that came out yeah yeah and like if you want to look it up folks many moons that's the name mm, of the, I, I love that song yeah i, I, remember, I yeah. saw many moons and i was like oh my god you know <laughs> and it was around that time where i had just gotten over my personal prejudices against musicians writing comics because for a while there, a lot of people were recommending a comic <laughs> to me. I know, right? It's like, I have this thing because it's like, I think a lot of people look at comics and go, oh, I can do that. And it's uh-huh. like, no, actually, you can't actually. It's a, actually, it's a skill. You can't just like walk in and do it. But people were recommending a story to me written by, not a story, a comic to me written by a guy named Gerard Way. Mm-hmm. And in case you don't know Gerard Way, is part of My Chemical Romance. Okay. And the comic was called Umbrella Academy. I'm pretty sure it's going to be a TV series pretty soon, but Umbrella Academy was a comic series, and I resisted reading it for a very long time because I'm like, no, fuck people who think they can walk into comics and just write a comic book. (laughs) I know, right? I'm very, I'm, I'm like stupid protective sometimes, but I eventually read it, and I really liked it. Like Umbrella Academy is fucking rad. I strongly recommend it. With that out of the way, you know, I was all like, you know, maybe maybe musicians can write a comic. You know, maybe mm-hmm. they can apply their creative skills beyond the scope of music. And I straight up at least two or three times was on the website for Janelle Monet and Wonderland, the crew she rolls with. Yeah. And like strongly considering sending her an email going, I've seen many moons. I think it's dope. I would absolutely love to sort of make that a comic series with you. If you're down, hit me up. But at that time, I didn't feel my britches were big enough. You know, it's like I didn't feel like it was my place to approach someone like Janelle Monet, And I just didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And never has that phrase, you know, she who hesitates is lost been more true because now she's way out of reach. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> now I couldn't I couldn't dream of, of ever contacting her and getting her to do like a comic book with me. You don't think so? But, Oh God, no! I'd love it if she would. I'd die on the floor. She no, wait, said wait, yes. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Now you you just <laughs> said earlier how prolific you are on Twitter. 
<laughs> she is definitely also active on Twitter. And I think if if there's anything that, I don't know, the last six months or so has shown that there's people that are putting together these little like fan fiction kind of things, like the whole Rihanna, Lupita, Ava, Issa Rae. Wouldn't you potential watch that heist minute, caper? Oh, of course, Wait, absolutely. Watch it in five seconds, oh, absolutely. I watch that. Yeah, reach out Wait, to her on Twitter. Oh god, <laughs> god, she's like a movie star now. She doesn't care. First of all, you know the whole like Atlanta AUC connection with Janelle Monae, right? What? What was it? So I know she sort of got her start like early, like two thousand ish. I remember first seeing her actually. On the strip, there used to be this this like bookstore on Uh the strip. It had like a little porch veranda thing, and sometimes musicians would play there. I don't know if you remember this. This might have been after you left. I I think it might have still been there. I don't know, but it was like right across from Clark's Student Center, Uh and that's where I first saw her perform. This was when she did the audition, her first album before she did the whole like. Cindy Mayweather kind of thing. And like, I think yeah. that actually was where the whole Metropolis concept was sort of forming in that first album. The whole album's on, on YouTube. People can look it up, but that's so cool. Her whole like Wonderland group, at least I know the one guy who uh, does a lot of work with her, George 2.0. Me and George went to Morehouse together. We were in the same Shut class. Up! Oh my God. And I know so she, cool. she sometimes comes like in and around Atlanta uh, to perform. I, I forgot the last time she was here, but. Yeah, there's an Atlanta. You can no, work that on Twitter. Don't don't talk. No, don't you can talk do that. I'm, I'm putting that out there this. in the universe. <laughs> you can do that. This. You can make oh, that God. happen. Can you imagine? Oh, Cindy Mayweather. Oh my God. You can make it happen. Oh I, God, I'm seriously about to like say, okay, all right, podcast is done, and then talk to you offline. Like, so your friend. <laughs> <laughs> But like right now is such like this this whole like electric time of black girl magic if you want to kind yes! of quantify it as such. I mean with yes. television and film and everything. You could do that. You could reach out to her on Twitter. Oh god, you're gonna make Come on die. now, you could do that. <laughs> See, oh it goes to like I oh, I have like such a hard time when I really admire someone. You know what I mean? It's like just <laughs> hi, um hi I, I know I'm beneath your notice, but I just wanted to say it really quick. It's like ah, <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe one day. See, Just putting it out there. I, I don't drink, so it's like I never get, like, that artificial dose of courage that the other people <laughs> enjoy. So I can't, like, I have to actually work myself up to it. And it's like, ah. Uh, any little thing will discourage me. Like, ah. Uh. And it's like, honestly, like, the, the dialogue in my head for, like, years now has been like, no, you missed that chance. You should have gone for it. But nope. Gone now. Look, the time is now. If there's yeah. anything that the current, I guess, precariousness of the safety of this country is showing us is that yeah. you need to, to seize it now. Like Tomorrow is not a promise and all that, yeah. It really isn't. I mean, you know, we're recording this when Trump is on vacation, but we don't know what's going to happen yeah, in the next 17 God, days. Though, if there is any, any silver lining to this cloud of bullshit (laughs) if there's any silver lining it's that these days people are far less skeptical of the experiences i tell them i've had Mm -hmm. like you've seen the xoxo talk the thing i talk about a lot is um there was a person in comics who basically told a a, like a really good friend and when i talk about good friend i spoke to her daily like Mm -hmm. every day i talked to this person and he was perfectly comfortable telling her don't listen to Spike. She doesn't have the background and the education 
to make it in comics. Yikes. And it, yeah, exactly. It's one of those things where it's like, what could he possibly mean? But, Oh, Oh, oh yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And there are people who I strongly feel like before all of this went down, there are people who would have maybe sort of like raised an eyebrow at that. It's like, well, do you really think that's what that meant? Like that does not happen these days. Yeah. These days people, more people than ever, not everyone, but more people than ever hear the dog whistle and they understand. And they understand that the road that I have walked down and the road I have cut from the brush with a machete are roads that exist because I am the way I am. I am a very self-starting kind of person. I am a very go-my-own-way kind of person. But quite frankly, I, I couldn't tell you if I am that way because that's just me, baby, or I've been forced to become that way because mm. of roadblocks that have been put up in front of me. I, mm-hmm. I can't. Those are inextricable from my experience of being me. Right, right. And a lot of people before Trump, pre-Trump, they believed in a world that was far more equitable than it actually was. And they believed in a world where I was misreporting and misremembering things. And they wouldn't necessarily tell me this to my face, but you could sort of see the skepticism on their face when I talk about there are definitely racists in comics that say racist things with complete comfort every day. And nowadays, that that look of skepticism does not exist. Yeah. And so that's the one thing. It's like a lot of stuff has come out of the woodwork now and people who are comfortable aren't as comfortable as they used to be. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What do you want to be working on? What do you want to be doing? Part of the long-term plan for Iron Circus for a long time has been a, here's a thing that I think is really important. When you work in the arts, a lot of people who have made it in the arts, and I'm talking like people you know, well-known writers, well-known painters, well-known directors, well-known people in any creative capacity. Part of the reason they were able to achieve what they achieve is a supportive spouse. And that goes for wives and husbands. A lot of people are behind the scenes of early art careers holding down the fort. Mm -hmm. And that is what my husband did for me. And he told me early on when we, we first moved in together that I don't care if you don't make any money in the arts. I think what you do is important and I'd be totally happy functioning as a patron of the arts informally. Wow. And yeah, so he was down even if I never made a dime, but nowadays the plan and we're maybe year and a half, two years, depending on how the rest of the year goes, a year and a half, two years out from iron circus paying off the mortgage, him quitting his job and coming to work for me full time. Whoa. Yeah, because we still live in a way as if I make no money. So everything Iron Circus makes goes into a bank account and just sits there. Mm-hmm. And for the past several, I mean, initially, one of the things I think is especially funny is uh, Poor Craft, the first book I ever kickstarted, the money that we made off of that played a significant role in the down payment on the condo we currently live in. <laughs> so the book about being poor paid for my condo. But the savings are currently sitting there and they're, you know, a few tens of thousand dollars away from paying off the balance of the mortgage. And when that happens, suddenly Matt, my husband, his job becomes sort of optional. Yeah, We can make it off of what I make. And we've had long talks about this and it's like, yeah, if this happens, he would be much happier working at Iron Circus than where he currently works. And 
we have it all planned out. Like we're going to take a photograph of us flipping off the website, Wells Fargo or whatever, with the, you know, account balance zero <laughs> there. We're going to have a party with all our friends. And then we're going to, you know, we're going to have an, people don't have them anymore, really. Like the mortgage burning parties. Like mm-hmm. if, if I even say that, does anyone know what I mean? <laughs> I think so. We're, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So it's like that. We're going to have a mortgage burning party. And then Matt will work at the day job as long as he feels like it, quite frankly. And then when he feels he has saved enough money or feels he's had enough, he will quit. And he will progressively have less and less hair as he comes in for his final two weeks. (laughs) Like, it'll be normal. And then, you know, it'll be blue. And then it'll be a mohawk. And, you know, this will be like an office environment. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, we talk about this. Like some people talk about one day I want to visit Bali. You know, we talk about and then I'm going to walk into the office with a blue mohawk and I'll be like, say something about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, that's like in the immediate future. In the future beyond that, the extra 10 years. Uh, God, I feel this is so cliche if you're in the small press right now. But uh one of the things I think about a lot is Iron Circus games, which, oh. yeah, like video games are the new film <laughs> in a way. Video games are a massive, insane, huge industry that parallel comics a lot closer than I think a lot of people realize. There's a lot of creators that sort of wander back and forth. They write for video games. They write for comics. They go back to writing for video games. Yeah. They draw for video games. And, they, and the tools for making games are a lot more accessible than they used to be. Like you used to have to sit there and learn raw C sharp or something, you know, and it got a little, a little easier when sort of engines came out and you just can, you know, learn the unity engine or something. But now it's even easier than that. And some of the games that you see being made are basically being made in programs that walk you through it, where you need to know little to no programming. There are engines for, uh, they call them visual novels. Um, and one of the games that's like the hottest shit right now is called dream daddy. And it's just, <laughs> have you heard of dream daddy? I've heard of dream daddy. Yeah. Yeah. And dream daddy, it's drawn by a lot of friends of mine. And it's written by, you know, um, a team of creators and it's done in a dating game engine. And it's like one of the best sellers on Steam. And another another game that was an ex bestseller on Steam was called uh, Stardew Valley. Mm-hmm. And that was all programmed by one guy. And like, I have no illusions. I don't have time. I run the business full time. I don't get weekends. I don't get vacations. I don't have time to sit down and learn a programming language. But what Iron Circus does have is capital. Hmm. And what I would love to do one day is work with people who have the technical know-how or even just like scout out creators the same way I scout out cartoonists to make graphic novels, scout out creators and say, here's a year's salary, get your game to Kickstarter ready status and then come back to me and we'll talk Hmm. and you'll be published under Iron Circus and I'll get all the money until I get paid back for my investment and then we'll split it equitably because an important element of running Iron Circus to me and sort of the foundation of a lot of my business decisions is paying creators fairly and paying, putting all the, most of the money where it belongs, which is in the hand of the creative parties. And that's why when I run an anthology project, on Kickstarter, the primary reason it's on Kickstarter is so I can pad the page rate. And if you go to all my Kickstarters, you'll see that the most recent one I had, 
because I ran it on Kickstarter and I got enough pre-orders, everybody's page rate went up $20. And that's what Kickstarter enables. And I'd love to be able to sort of reproduce that model in a game sphere. And I'm not sitting here pretending I'm going to make the next Skyrim or something. You know, I, I have no interest in being Marvel or DC and I have no interest in being electronic arts. I would love to make strange, cool, weird games uh-huh. and finance that for a 25 year old or 26 year old kid who knows how to use unity or game maker studios, but has no time and no money. And I'd love to be able to be that person that can be all like, here's a year's salary, work it out and then help them get their game where it needs to go. And that's something that is in the, in the long run, you know, that's something that's maybe three, four years out, but it's something that I've had my eye on it for a long time. Wow. (laughs) We've had some game makers and creators actually, I mean, just recently, uh, episode 203 was Kat Small, who has been on the show before. She's been on the show back in 2014, but uh, we had her back on again recently just to kind of catch up. And I don't know if you know her, if you're familiar with her. Not familiar, no. I got to introduce the two of you. I feel like that's a that's a good match right there. She's a game maker. She's in Brooklyn. She's a product designer. She has the technical know-how. She's put on game expos, game jams. She has, I think, three or four games out now. I got to connect y'all too. Yeah, Black Woman. She's dope. Super dope. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would love, honestly, I just, I'd love to, I'm not even going to sit here and bullshit. I'd love to just be a Black-owned game-making sort of studio somewhere. Like, if Iron Circus could make comics and then reproduce this model and put it in games, I think I could do a lot of good. Because again, like, God, I watched a documentary. This is so off topic, but I swear to God it connects. I watched a documentary where it was called Cancer, the Emperor of All Maladies. And it was based on a best-selling book, which I read and I really love, by the way. And it's just sort of about the history of the medical community fighting cancer. And one of the things that really sort of put cancer research into overdrive was not a doctor, but it was a socialite. It was a woman who knew how to get money where it needed to go. Mm-hmm. And she would get on TV and she would talk about donating to cancer charities and cancer research. And she was instrumental in setting up kind of what we think of as the sort of the structure we use now for medical donation and medical foundations, like the American Heart Association, the American Cancer Society, like that exists because she figured out how to make this work. And she called money frozen energy. And I, that's the part that stuck with me out of all of this is like, Right now, Iron Circus is debt-free, and it has a war chest, and it has access to frozen energy, and it's a matter of directing that energy. And of course, I'm going to direct it at comics. I'd love to put out at least 10 a year, and I'm on track to do that for 2018, but where else can I direct that energy? And I know, being who I am and having the experiences I have, I want to see more of a certain kind of thing in the world. Yeah, And I want to see games casually starring people like me. I want to see games with themes that I'm interested in, but don't aren't very popular in sort of the general overtone of indie and small gaming. I want to see interesting and new ideas that no one wants to gamble on. And I want to be able to be that person to show up to that party and be all like, hey, how about you quit freelancing for a year, get this to a place where we can kickstart it, and then we can talk. Nice. And yeah, it's like, that's who I want to be. 
the thing that's kind of scary is it's doable at this point. And <laughs> I'd like the only thing holding me back is like, obviously, like I said, I want to, I want to get this mortgage out of the way and then this can happen. Just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work, about Iron Circus? Where can they find that online? Okay, cool. Hey, what's up? You should follow me on Twitter. Although be noted, I I draw and post a lot of weird pornography on my Twitter. So, you know, maybe don't read it in front of grandma. I'm on Twitter at iron underscore spike. If you find a Twitter account with like 28,000 followers and a smiling portrait of me, that's me. I also have a Twitter account for Iron Circus Comics, but the whole phrase would not fit. So at the end of comics, it's an X instead of a CS. So Iron Circus Comics, all one word ending with an X. That is my publisher account. There is less pornography posted there. So that's probably <laughs> a safer a safer follow. Ironcircus.com is the domain for my publisher, Iron Circus Comics. On Kickstarter, I am just Iron Spike, all one word. If I could do it again, I would have my Kickstarter account be Iron Circus Comics. But I founded it literally years before anyone thought that would matter. So (laughs) I'm just Iron Spike on Kickstarter. You can follow me there. Iron Circus Comics also has a Facebook page. So if you search Facebook for Iron Circus Comics, a business page will come up. And you can follow me there. And uh, yeah, if you are a bookstore, bookstore owner, person who wholesales books and you're interested in carrying the strange and amazing which is iron circus's tagline that's what we publish the strange and amazing we are distributed through consortium book sales and distribution cbsd.com also i have a i have my own podcast (laughs) oh that's right uh what's dirty old ladies is that it Yep, Dirty Old Ladies. It's about three comics professionals talking about comics. So if you didn't get enough of me here, you're going to hear me blab on and on and on about comics at at Dirty Old Ladies. And it's on iTunes. And if you want to follow it on Twitter for updates, it's at Dirty Old Ladies, all one word. All right. Sounds and, good. Well, oh, wait, oh, you, oh, there's, more, there's more. There's, there's more. more. <laughs> One last thing. It's September 11th. And what that means is I have launched a Kickstarter today or I will launch a Kickstarter today. And what that means is Girls with Slingshots, the perfect collection, launches today on Kickstarter. This is Daniel Corsetto's 10-ish year old comic. It is a completed comic, and it is one of the first big successes of webcomics. It's a slice-of-life story about two roommates, 20-somethings, that eventually become early 30-somethings making their way in the world. If you love Daniel Corsetto's art, if you love Girls with Slingshots, if you love comics in general then you should check Kickstarter right now for Girls with Slingshots. That's not exactly a hard-to-Google term. (laughs) There's not going to be a lot of things called that on Kickstarter right now. And this is for the perfect collection, every Girls with Slingshots strip ever. So this is going to be that slipcase-covered, leather-bound masterpiece of a book that all the fans have been waiting on. And you should back it on Kickstarter to make sure it comes to pass. I will make sure that we have a link to that in the show notes. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, Spike, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, thank you for having me. I was already a fan, <laughs> of course, before the interview. And then talking and you know with better. you. At, no, no, no. I mean, talking <laughs> with you and realizing, like, I mean, we have a lot in common just in terms of, like, where we went to school and uh-huh. how that whole experience and everything was. But, I mean, you are someone that is turning fantastic ideas into fantastic realities. And I mean, 
you're you're someone to me that I feel like is really changing the game. Certainly, oh you're an innovator in terms of, of crowdfunding, <laughs> you know, for indie comics. And I hope that you get all the recognition you deserve. I am looking forward to seeing your shit on the screen right on, in a few years. So thank you thank again you. so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to C Spike Trotman and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Spike and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. Their mission is to make the world more open and connected, and they use design to create prototypes, shape experiences, and ultimately solve problems as well. Learn more about Facebook Design at facebook.com forward slash design. Whether you need to sell your products, share some big news, or just tell a story, MailChimp makes it easy to create campaigns that best suit your message. You can automate your marketing efforts, put your data to work, and watch the results roll in. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. They offer free private domain registration, your choice of hundreds of domain extensions, and you can connect those domains to your favorite web service. Ready to get started? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily, not having to worry about web hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. Also, don't forget about the presenting sponsor for this week's episode, Videoblocks. Go to videoblocks.com forward slash revision path to get all the stock footage you can imagine for $149 a year. That's V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com forward slash revision path to save on millions of studio quality clips from video blocks. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for Design Podcast, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.